Speaking of persecution, that uh, the whole thing about the month of November being the month of uh, prayer for the persecuted church, there is a prayer guide out in the foyer if you want one for that very purpose, and it's really good. Like, it's really super informative. I, I, I looked at it, and I thought, wow, this is a great resource. So uh, I grabbed one, and I hope you grab one too. In Revelation 5, John has a vision of the future, and he says there, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. He's speaking to Jesus, to the Lamb. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And uh, you may think that's uh, one of one, but there's actually two that say almost the same thing. A couple chapters later, in chapter seven we read, after this I looked, behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to, who, to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now, that, th- those two are great calls to worship type passages uh, because th- we look at that and, and it just inspires us. Every Christian heart ought to be aflame when you think of that picture of how things will be on that day when God is glorified in his people. And that will be maybe the ultimate. I have really no way of knowing whether that is the ultimate. It seems to me like this would be the ultimate moment where God is most glorified because he will be glorified in his son, the lamb, in the midst of a people that he has redeemed, a completed people. Now, if if that's sort of the trajectory of where we're headed long-term, then what we're looking at today in the book of Acts was that sort of patient zero of the nations. We know that that the the gospel had gone to the Jews, but but that opening of that that door, that key being opened, uh, is is Cornelius. And that's what we're looking at today, and our big idea is pretty simple. I don't think you'll argue with me on this, but that is Christ's kingdom includes men and women of every nation. And what we're going to see is that in order for that to happen, um, God had to bring that about. And he didn't just bring about uh, from the standpoint of the Father or just from the Son or just from the Holy Spirit, but it is the triune God who works this. And uh, lest you think that I'm just uh, dumping this, you know, like I've got this Nicene, uh, you know, Christology and I'm just forcing it on the text, I believe that you'll look at this text and you'll say, yes, that, that is right out of the text. The text kind of breaks into three sections, if you will, and, uh, and it just goes Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Are you with me on that? You tracking how that fits together? Okay, so first of all, God the Father accepts all nations. God the Father accepts all nations. And uh, you'll notice I'm staying pretty close to the biblical language here as we go through. This first section of the Father is verses 23 to 35, if you're interested in where that begins and ends. Peter makes the trip from Joppa to Caesarea. Uh, Peter uh, had some of the Hebrew Christians with him, you'll recall. It didn't give us a specific number. He had the three men that Cornelius had sent with him, and, and thus they had um, on there uh, from Joppa to Caesarea. And it tells us in verse 24, and on the following day they entered Caesarea. So not yet Cornelius' home, but into the city of Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. 
So Peter and his fellow Jews probably felt just a little out of place here. You could, I mean, it, it must have been with some trepidation that they go to Caesarea. You'll remember we talked about it last time that Caesarea was a Roman enclave. Uh, there were Jews there. It was the Holy Land, after all. It was in Israel, but there were far more Romans than there were uh, Jews. And the number, when they get to Cornelius' home, it's a, it's a pretty good crowd. And, and, and the numbers seem to be pretty lopsided. After they enter the city, but before they go into the home, there's this moment where Cornelius runs out to them, and it's in verse 25. He goes out and he falls on his face before Peter, and it says he worships him. Now, I don't think that Cornelius literally thought that, that Peter was God. I don't think that's what it's speaking about. Like in Roman terms, that wasn't an unusual thing not a completely unusual thing to do, because if you saw the emperor, that's exactly what you would do. You would fall down on your face, you would worship. I think what he's doing is he recognizes that, well, I mean, an angel had come to him, that was pretty big stuff, wasn't it? And said, uh, yeah, I'm not the one that's gonna tell you this, you need to go and get this other guy. Well, you know, if an angel is here and Peter is here, it puts him pretty high and he's just recognizing that. Peter, of course, is not comfortable being worshiped, that is something um, none of us should be comfortable with. We, should, we are not meant to be icons. We are not meant to be worshipped. In fact, in Scripture, I think the only person who receives worship from people falling down and worshiping them is Jesus. Yeah. Remember when doubting Thomas, the, the disciple who had doubted Thomas, uh, finally sees Jesus and he says, hey, you know, if you want to put your hand in my side, go right ahead. And he, falls on his face and worships him, and Jesus doesn't miss a beat. He just receives that because, of course, he is is God. Um, That's when they go into the home, and it gets interesting. We are told that the relatives and close friends there had gathered. Obviously, Cornelius had had an influence on people. He was himself seeking, and there seems to be sort of a cadre of people that, in association with Cornelius, had started to become interested in this God of the Hebrews. There had to be a nervous tension there. Think about this for a moment. Imagine you're, how many have ever been at a high school basketball game? Anyone here ever? Couple of you, okay. Um, well, this is not gonna go over very well if, for those that haven't, but uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but things can get pretty heated. I come from Indiana, I mean like, Blood can, can be spilled. Um, you, know, you got a crosstown rivalry going on there, one high school against another, and it's just been a brutal first half of the game, and then there's, you, know, you have halftime. This would be like if you said to your friends, hey, why don't, why don't three or four of us go over there because I see a buddy of mine from work. Let's go over to the other side of the stadium and, and go say hi to him. Like, yeah, that's, that's not exactly an easy place to, to, to find. It's awkward, it's awkward. Peter addresses this very Jewish elephant in the room. First, he, uh, he points out uh, what makes it awkward, and that's in verse 28. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. Now, technically speaking, Peter's wrong. <laughs> If, if, if he were meaning to say, which he's not, if he meant to say that it's written in the Old Testament that as a Jew thou shalt never associate with a Gentile, there isn't any such law in the scripture. But it was the custom of the Jewish people in Peter's day that if you were going to stay and keep kosher, that you didn't just go wandering into some Gentile home where you could be made unclean. So for them at that time, it was as law to, to not do such a thing. 
But then Peter says, and and this kind of gets at the whole point of where God the Father figures in. He says, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. How did God show Peter that? The sheet coming down from heaven with all the clean and the unclean animals, the common and the, uh, and, and, and the pure both together. And, uh, and God had shown him. Peter, he kept saying, Peter, rise and eat. And Peter's like, no, I've never eaten anything common or impure. And God says, well, don't call common what I've, what I've cleansed, what I've, what I've declared clean. And, and we said at the time, you know, Peter did not actually get up and kill any of these imaginary, visionary animals. It was to make a point. That's how God showed him. Now, I'm not going to spend any time in verses 30 or 32, which you'll be happy about because we've got to make time. But in 30 and 32, Cornelius simply reiterates what we've already been told about the vision that he had. But then he gets to verse, uh, we get to verse 33, and there's some new information there. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. This kind of, kind of nice, Cornelius, already through the contact he'd had with other Jewish people, he knew it was a big ask for him to come into his home. He recognizes that. He, he says, this is really kind of you to do this. And then he's like, okay, so now that you're here, just tell us what God's commanded you. Doesn't that sound like the, the soldier that he is? Again, we talked about that last time. What, what is the life of a soldier? What are my orders? Who do I order around? That's pretty much the totality of it. And that, so it's a very simple view of God, which we would do well to have. Too many Christians today uh, think commands are just there to uh, uh, give us something interesting to talk about. Um, but he's like, give me, give me the command. And Peter says something almost the same as he said earlier in verse 28. It says, so Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And there's that word acceptable from which we got our first point here that God accepts men and women from every nation. Uh, this, is, this is the big reveal. Uh, Peter not only considers them to be no longer impure or unclean, but he goes a step further and he says he understands that they are acceptable. Acceptable. Now what does that mean? That is the million dollar question. What is Peter saying when he says they're acceptable? The word there in Greek is very akin to the idea of welcome. Welcome. What do you mean when you say to somebody, you are always welcome in my home. What are you communicating? I, I would always want fellowship with you. You're the sort of person I want to have over and, and, and to have at my home. The Jewish people did not consider Gentiles to be acceptable. They weren't welcome. They didn't have the notion of being together, and yet God has done so. By the way, this is not suggesting that Cornelius is fine just the way he is. I know I said that last time, I want to reiterate it. It, To say they're acceptable, that men and women of all nations are acceptable, is not saying that each person can come to God on the basis of his own works and be accepted by God just exactly as they are. If that were the case, then he would not have needed to send for Peter. But Peter must come. Peter must come. Peter must declare the gospel. He must end up believing in the gospel for him to be acceptable before God. But God is saying, look, men and women of all nations 
are welcome in my kingdom. It is God's perspective. It's not an afterthought on God's part. It's not God changing his mind. It is, it is the very purpose from the foundation of the earth that God would do it this way. He had told Abraham in, that, that through Abraham's seed, all the nations of the world would be blessed. He purposed it. We've seen how he's orchestrated all of this. God the Father's not in the background whatsoever. He sends an angel. He gives the vision. He gets, he gets Peter to Lydda and gets Peter to Joppa and all, you know, all the rest that we talked about. All of these things God has orchestrated. It is his plan. When we see the multitude standing before the throne, dressed in white robes, why are they white? Because they're washed in the blood of Christ. That image is God's purpose. That God the Father has chosen and ordained for that to happen. Isn't that great? Yeah. Well, next, if, if you know Christianity 101, Trinity, what's, what's, this, what's the second person of the Trinity that we should expect at this point? The Son, right? The Son. The Son is Lord and Savior of all the nations. That's how they are to be included in that kingdom. Peter uh, presents the gospel. Uh, look how he launches in verse 36. As for the word that he sent to Israel, <laughs> emphasis on Israel there, uh, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. Now this whole section that we're looking at is densely packed. We could spend I could probably preach 30 sermons if I wanted to break it into very small units because there's just so much good theology and doctrine in this. If you look at this just little bit that we read just now, what Peter is speaking about there is the effect that the gospel has brought about, namely reconciliation, that God has reconciled those who through sin were alienated from him and through him now we have peace with him. Then he throws in that little parenthetical thought, which is a big thought. It's a big thought that's very germane to our idea today. Namely, that is, he is Lord of all. So he's talking about Israel. Jesus came to Israel, but then Peter can't help himself to throw it in at this moment. But he's Lord. He's Lord of all. Jesus, the Son, the heart of the good news, the heart of that, of that whole message of peace with God for Israel. Um, yes, to the Jew first. But his lordship, as it turns out, is much more expansive than just Israel. It's to every nation. Before he goes any further, he says something that we might not have uh, otherwise known. He says, you yourselves, and this is just one of those little aha things, not, not really super central to the focus of what we're saying, but I just want you to pick up on this. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. Now, isn't that fascinating? And this isn't the only place in the book of Acts we see this kind of thing. Peter considers it undeniable that those Gentiles, all the way up in Caesarea, before the internet, before newspapers, you know, before Pony Express, knew exactly what he was talking about. Isn't that, doesn't that blow you away? Like, he knew that they would have heard the entire outline of the life of Christ, the essential essence of this is the type of life, this is the sort of person, you've, you've heard this, you know this. And then to summarize Christ's life and ministry, Peter says uh, this, and, and just note that this is not uh, an apologetic uh, that Je he's not apologetic that Jesus came to the Jews first. He says, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. 
he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are his witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. So emphasis there, Jesus was a good guy, <laughs> yeah, anointed by God, went about doing good, healing those that were oppressed by the devil, particularly though in Jerusalem and Judea. So he was, he was a, a savior for the Jews. As, and, and, but the good part here, the, the, the good thing, if they knew this or not, um, there, was a, there was an inkling of the fact that he did good to the Gentiles as well. You remember there was, a, there was a particular centurion, I believe we talked about him last time, whose servant was ill and Christ healed him. And that was, that was glorious. Then there's the Syrophoenician woman. How many remember and just, how many just love the Syrophoenician woman story? Isn't that just the great? That's one of those hard sayings of Jesus where a lot of people really uh, struggle. But there was a woman, not a Jew, thus, they, thus she's named as a Syrophoenician woman. And, uh, and her daughter was, uh, was demon-possessed. And she came to Jesus. She's like, can you heal my daughter? And, and he's like, well, it's not right <laughs> to take the bread from the children and give it to the dogs. In other words, I'm here for the Jews. I came, that, that my ministry before my death and burial and resurrection is to the Jews. It's not right for me to take what was intended for them and give it to you, is what, was what Jesus was saying. But he did end up healing her daughter, so all who were oppressed. And then Peter gives what we could call the ground zero of the gospel. He says, they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Doesn't that sound exactly like the way Paul summarizes the gospel? Very familiar portion of scripture, I mention it quite frequently. 1 Corinthians 15. Paul reminds them, this is the gospel that I preach to you. And if you say, well, Paul, what gospel do you mean? He, he says, well, that gospel that you received and that you believed and by which you're being saved. Namely, that Jesus Christ came into the world, died for sinners, was buried, rose the third day, ascended uh, on high. That's the essence of the gospel, and that's what Peter has just gotten through telling them. And it isn't as though Cornelius was already part of the kingdom of God. It's not as if Peter's just declaring to him, which is what some people think. Some people erroneously think that the gospel is just going and telling people that they're already saved. It's not that. It's telling them what God has done that people might be saved, but then they must believe. Peter says, and he commanded us to preach. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And notice the commanded part. When, when Peter says he commanded us, what, remember what Cornelius had asked? He said, we're here, we're gathered, we want to hear what God has commanded you. And Peter's like, you want to know what I was commanded? Do you want to know what I was commanded? You can't, know. Um, I'll tell you what I was commanded, to preach this message to you, to preach that, that Jesus Christ is the judge of all men. Implication, there is a judgment. But the forgiveness that comes is in his name to those who believe in him. Again, this is extremely densely packed stuff. Rich, rich theology. Peter preaches salvation, calling it the forgiveness of, you know, we can talk about forg the, uh, salvation in so many different ways, 
And I, I mentioned once before throughout the book of Acts that Luke just about changes his vocabulary with every instance. Here he speaks of it as the forgiveness of sins in his name. But Cornelius and his house must believe. Must believe. Isn't it beautiful how, so far, if you look at this, how God the Father and God the Son are together in this. It is God the Father's purpose. He has determined that the nations will be part of that kingdom. Christ has died as the judge and savior of all men. He has died so that these nations might be included. Don't don't you love seeing that? Now I know there's not 12 applications for how you can go home and be a better Christian today. Based on this, this is one of those behold kinds of passages where we're just, we can we just stand back and look at this and go, isn't this a glorious, beautiful thing? The Father and the Son are completely united that all the nations be included in his kingdom. But you know, if you can count, you know, Trinity is, is one, two, three, right? We're th- what, who's the third person of the Trinity we're expecting now? The Holy Spirit, right? Yeah, yeah. the Holy Spirit is the gift to all nations, and uh, what we're about to see could be called Pentecost 2. Pentecost 2, Pentecost Part 2, Pen- Pentecost the Gentile version, I don't know. It, it, it's, it's nearly I- identical. So you, you have the Holy Spirit bringing about the new birth through the gospel, yielding salvation. At this point, just as at Pentecost, they end up speaking in tongues. Look look at the verse. It says, And the believers uh, from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. So now Peter has learned the final piece of the puzzle, hasn't he? That God the Father has determined to include the nations, that he accepts them, that they're acceptable to him as candidates of of salvation, that Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior of them all. And now he sees that the Holy Spirit is willing to fall upon all the nations as well, that he is that gift to them. That was a sharp learning curve, wasn't it, for, for the Jewish believers? Peter was ready, I mean, because we've seen how God prepped Peter. It wasn't just like he just walked into it cold. I mean, God had been cranking and cranking. You can almost see the WD-40s on those, those rusty, you know, wheels, right? Kind of, and, and, and they're moving now for Peter. The, the, the other people that are with him, they're not quite as far up to speed. I mean, they, they are amazed, it says. They're, they, to quote the Brits, they are gobsmacked. I think in British English version it should it should say gobsmacked here they were you know gobsmacked that's your gob your mouth Ah. they were gobsmacked they were they they were floored but for peter the coins already dropped peter understands and it says then peter declared so you can see peter's like "Eh, i'm on top of this i know what god wants now (laughs) then peter declared can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the holy spirit just as we have and he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Peter is fully persuaded, and now he is persuading. His proof that the Gentiles are included in, uh, that the nations are included within that kingdom is that they have received the Holy Spirit even as we have, as we Jewish believers. There is no difference. If you look at the account of Pentecost and you look at the account of Pentecost too. They, they are essentially identical. Their salvations look the same. 
If you count yourself as a Christian today, if you profess the ancient creeds concerning the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, this ought to really, this ought to really cause your heart just to well up toward God. Because this, you probably, you know, way when you're, when you're a little kid, you probably learned about the Trinity. Mom, what's the Trinity? Explain the Trinity to me. Ask your dad. Um, hard thing to explain. You've believed it probably the, your whole Christian life, but so, hard, so many times it's, it's hard-pressed. Like, well, what's the Trinity? Why a Trinity? What's, what? it's, so, it's so difficult. But, you know, you get into the Scripture and you start looking. This is not the only place where you see Father, Son, and Spirit laid out in this kind of a fashion. It's, it's actually in many places. And what you see here as a Christian is that far from being an afterthought, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have designed this, 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 this whole uh, gospel that we talk about for the salvation of, of a people unto God, not just of the children of Abraham according to the flesh, but all the nations. And there's a few applications we can make really quickly for that, and I know that we've had a long service today, but it won't take long. Three, three quick applications, but well, maybe four. Uh, first of all, being a Gentile, which I'm guessing all of you are, with maybe some partial exception somewhere, uh, you know, if you're that blessed. But uh, anyway, uh, being a Gentile does not exclude you from the kingdom of God. In fact, nothing about your heritage, nothing about your ethnicity of any kind separates you or keeps you from the kingdom of God. Paul told the Gentile believers in Ephesus, he says, you know what, before you, the gospel came, you were Gentiles, you were uncircumcised, separated from Christ, alienated from Israel, strangers as to the covenant of promise, no hope without, without hope without God in the world. That's who we were. But by the will of the triune God, the gospel has come to us and we have heard and we have believed and we are included. So no matter what our background is, we can know that we are included in his kingdom. Sec second application, and this was really apropos to today. Uh, if we were all strangers of all these various nations and we've all now been invited into that kingdom, then there really is no ethnic group from which God will not save People. In fact, we, we are told that in that vision that it will be people from every single tribe and people and language and nation, every, every ethnicity. So what does that say about the whole racial reconciliation thing today that, that, that we're spending a lot of time and uh, worried about and talking about and political and all, all of these things? You know? And I'm not going to get political. I'm just saying this is a big deal in our culture right now. What this tells us is that on the one hand, as Christians, obviously there's no room for any kind of racism, is there? And at the same time, what does it tell us? It tells us that, that by the work and will of the triune God, through the gospel of Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit, reconciliation is baked into it. And we, we need to live that out but we don't need to think of it as this impossible thing that can never be done because it's been done. We need to live it out. And then finally, we need to get in step with the Father and Son and the Spirit with that desire for the... What are we supposed to pray according to the Lord's Prayer about God's kingdom? What's, what's the little... I've forgotten the wordy. What is it you're supposed to pray for? Kingdom come, right? It is to be our desire. What is the first thing that we're to, to do according to Jesus? What do we, we desire? Seek what is it again? The... 
kingdom, right? I, well, what about that house I'm, I'm wanting to buy? What about that, uh, that it, whatever it is you pursue, whatever goals you have in mind? Well, it better be second, third, fourth, somewhere else down the list because number one, we're to seek the kingdom of God. So if God's passion is to win people from every nation in, for, for his kingdom, for his glory, then that needs to be our passion. I really do invite you to pick up that little booklet, that prayer booklet, because when you think about reaching the nations, yes, a good portion of that is missionary work, but there are already missionaries in some of those countries called the church in those countries, and it's being persecuted, and yet some of them are just doing amazing work evangelizing the lost, even though it could cost them their lives. Pick, pick up that book and be praying for the persecuted church. And the one final application, this is sort of the bonus application. And I don't know, maybe, maybe there's not a soul here that can make this application. But if by God's sovereign purposes, if by God's providence you are listening to this today and you have never fully understood, grasped, and responded to the gospel, then today I pray that you're Cornelius. I pray that, that your heart is open. I pray that you're listening. I pray that you're seeking and that you will hear this gospel that Peter declared to him concerning Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all the nations, over, over all. That those who understand and believe that, that Christ died for their sins and was raised, that they, by believing in him, will have life in his name. Agree with God, agree with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in this, and you will be brought into his kingdom. Let's pray. Thank you so much, Lord, for your, your sovereign work. We see your work, Father, Son, and Spirit, in this glorious fashion. Thank you for purposing it, Lord. Thank you for dying to make it possible, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that, that you, the gift that you are, have been poured out on all the, all the peoples, all the nations, and that there is no difference. There is no Jew, nor Greek, male, nor female, slave, nor free but all are one in Christ Jesus, and we thank you um, that we can claim that today, know that. Lord, inspire us, fill our hearts with, with, with joy in this, and, and may it motivate us um, to seek racial reconciliation where we may, where, where, where that's possible in our lives, and, and to fully support uh, our missionaries and, and, and the church at large to be in prayer for for churches in, in, in areas like Indonesia where there's so many unreached people groups and, and Lord that the church there might rise to the task. Thank you that we can even support uh, a missionary family there encouraging that work and doing that work and, and we pray for them. But most of all, Lord, we pray that someone today would hear the gospel and, uh, and recognize it and be Cornelius and his household and hear and believe and that you would save them today. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.